Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and I'm excited to be in the studio with you again this morning. I was thinking about what we should talk about on the show today. I hope you enjoyed last week's show about how to respond to doubt. When we have doubt, and everybody has doubt, no matter who they are, no matter what they believe, doubt is a part of being a human being, we constantly second-guess our decisions, we constantly second-guess our beliefs. Doubt doesn't invalidate your beliefs, it doesn't invalidate what you know to be true. Doubt is something everyone has to face. And last week we talked about how to react to doubt when you encounter it as a Christian. I hope you enjoyed that show. You can go to godsolutionshow.com, again, godsolutionshow.com, to get that show. So talking about answers and talking about doubt, I wanted to take it to the next level this week. A lot of times, talking to students, I hear some similar questions that come up time and time and time again. In fact, we often do Q&As on campus, dinners in our home where we have Q&As and things like that, and a lot of the questions that get asked are quite typical. Now, there are so many questions that you could ask. There's a great new book coming out soon by Norman Geisler and another gentleman that was recently on the show, and it's going to discuss the 100 most asked questions and answers to those. It'll be great. I think we might even get Dr. Geisler on the show to talk about the book. I'm hoping so. At least that is what it looks like now. That would be quite the show, to say the least. But If you're encountering these different questions, I would encourage you to find a resource like that. And there are many others. William Lane Craig has a book called Tough Questions, Good Answers, or something like that. You could look at Craig's book. You could even go to reasonablefaith.org and look at his Q&A forum for more answers to good questions. But anyway, today I thought I would look at the top five questions that I typically hear on campus as I talk to students, and I'm on campus nearly every day, as we do Q&As at our house and things like that, there are these similar questions that constantly come up. I thought it would be good today to take a little bit of time and address the top five questions that I hear. And I hope, if these have caused you doubt, that you'll remember these answers and remind yourself of them when you encounter doubt about these issues. Again, we only have so much time, and there's only so much we can do, and there are so many other questions we could talk about. The top five questions that I wanted to talk about today, and these come up very often as I talk with college students. Number one, can I really trust the Bible? I think this is a huge question because if we're following Christ, if we're Christian, which means Christ follower, then we, by default, trust his word. If I don't believe his word. If I don't follow his word, I'm not a Christian. There are these peculiar instances of Christian denominations, a couple, I won't name them, who have rejected the inerrancy and authority of God's word, the Bible, which really makes things confusing. How can you possibly call yourself a Christian if you don't follow Christ? Not possible. So if you really want to follow Christ as a Christian, Can you trust the Bible? Because if you can't trust the Bible, you cannot possibly follow Christ and the Bible, right? I mean, if the Bible isn't trustworthy, if God's word is not trustworthy, then how in the world could you devote your life to following it? Impossible. So can we trust the Bible? Question number one. Question number two, what about evolution? Doesn't it disprove God? 
Question number three, what about the problem of pain and suffering? I've dealt extensively with that on numerous shows in the past. You can get those shows at godsolutionshow.com. But we'll address it today because it's one of the top five questions that we hear. Homosexuality, does God hate gay people? I get this question all the time. There have been groups like the Westboro Baptists who are not a church, who are not Baptists, and who are not Christians. They might claim to be all three of those things, but their lives and message disprove that. In fact, the book of 1 John tells us that if you hate your brother, you don't know God. So when you see people marching with signs about how much they hate, 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 <laughs> you can't possibly look at those people and say, yep, they're accurate and authentic Christians. Because the Bible says if you hate your brother, you can't possibly love God. But the question remains, people like that have given a really poor image to true Christians. And the question remains, what about homosexuality? What does the Bible have to say about it? We hear this question all the time when we do Q&As. It's a pretty hot topic right now, and it's a question that I'd love to address this morning. Okay, finally, the fifth question, how can I be right with God? I heard this yesterday on campus talking with a student. He said, Nate, I have to know how can I be right with God? I need to know what does it take to be right with God? What do I have to do to be right with God? And we had a long conversation about that. And at the end of the conversation, he went, that is so relieving. I had no idea how to answer those questions, but hearing you, that is so relieving. I'll share with you what I shared with him, and I hope it is just as relieving to you as it was to him. Okay, the top five questions again. Can I trust the Bible? What about evolution? Doesn't it disprove God? What about the problem of pain, evil, and suffering? What about homosexuality? And how can I be right with God? Those are the top five questions that I hear on campus. And I'm going to jump into them right now. We're going to do a real quick answer to each of them. I hope you get a lot out of it. So let's go to question number one. Can I trust the Bible? Yes, you can trust the Bible. I would encourage you, before I even get any further into that question, to get Dr. Craig Blomberg's book, Can We Still Believe the Bible? Dr. Craig Blomberg was actually on the show a couple months ago talking about that book. You could get those interviews at GodSolutionShow.com. He does a wonderful job in that book from a very scholarly perspective. He's one of the greatest New Testament scholars on the planet, and he talks about why we can trust the Bible. I would encourage you to read that book. It's a great resource. So why can we trust the Bible? Well, you've heard me talk on this show about this in the past, so I'll try to keep it brief. The Bible foretells the future, literally foretells the future. This is incredible. I mean, the fact that the Bible actually has hundreds, even some would say well over a thousand fulfilled prophecies that are fulfilled very accurately, even down to incredibly minute details, convinces me that the Bible is God's word. Nothing could possibly foretell the future without that being revealed by the creator who stands outside of time and can foresee the future. The fact that we see hundreds, even over a thousand fulfilled prophecies in scripture tells me that it's God's word. In fact, there are over a hundred prophecies, specific prophecies of Jesus that he fulfilled when he lived on this planet. Unbelievable. So foretells the future. The Bible foretells the future and that fulfilled prophecy 
convinces me that the Bible is trustworthy in God's word. Next, the Bible is archaeologically accurate. Some people would say you can't trust it because of X, Y, and Z. Well, those accusations always fall apart. And time and scholarship always come back in support of biblical archaeology. So I can trust it because it's historically accurate. Next, the Bible's contradiction-free. A lot of critics would say, what about all those contradictions in the Bible? Now, I've read other religious texts, and I've seen many unmistakably obvious contradictions. When I read the Bible, I don't see those. And when I talk to atheists that make those criticisms, I never get good examples of contradictions. And whenever I hear one that sounds like it might be accurate, there's always a really good answer to it. The reality is the Bible's contradiction-free, and there's no way it could be so unless it was authored by God himself. Next, the Bible's translated correctly. We've all heard that accusation that you can't trust the Bible because it's changed over time because, you know, the translation game, the telephone game, one person hears one thing, repeats it a different way. The next person hears something different, repeats it a different way, etc., etc. What comes out at the end is far different than what went in in the beginning. Well, that doesn't apply to the Bible because we can go back and look at thousands of manuscript copies of various parts of the New Testament. So we can look at the original languages and we can see what was originally written. The Bible is not always translated correctly, but most modern translations are pretty accurate. And I can look at the original Greek and see how they line up. You could even go to someplace like studylight.org, type in any verse you want in the Bible, and you could compare any of the modern translations to the original Greek yourself. So translated correctly, yep, I can trust it. Finally, science in the Bible. I love the scientific statements in the Bible, whether it's a nearly textbook definition of radioactive decay, whether it's a discussion of the expansion of the universe, the law of entropy, hydrologic cycles, or many other scientific truths that are found in Scripture. All those things bear what I consider to be God's fingerprints on his word. How else could people thousands of years ago so accurately have described scientific realities. The Bible is not a scientific textbook, but the scientific statements in the Bible are God's fingerprints on his word showing me that I can trust it. So can you trust the Bible? Absolutely, you can trust the Bible. Okay, what about evolution? Doesn't evolution disprove God? Well, before I even get into the issue of evolution, evolution, even if it were true, would not disprove God. Even if it were true, it would be nothing more than a description of how life on this planet changed and how life on this planet adapted to different types of environments. So even if evolution were true, it surely wouldn't disprove God, and it surely wouldn't disprove the Bible or the Christian view of God. In fact, there are many Christian evolutionists. I'm not endorsing evolution. I'm just making sure people understand that evolution doesn't disprove God. Francis Collins is one of the greatest scientists of our lifetimes, and he is an evangelical Christian who came to faith in Christ after realizing his own sin and his own need for a savior. And he's also an avowed evolutionist. He believes that God directed that process. I think he's wrong on that note, but it would be crazy to say that evolution disproves God. So even if evolution were true, it doesn't disprove God. But here are a few reasons that I don't believe evolution 
is true. And again, my college degree was in chemistry, and I've had to do a lot of the science. And in fact, chemistry is a more rigorous science than biology. And a lot of times, things that evolutionists are comfortable with are things that would fail you out of a college chemistry program, the statistics and things like that. So let me tell you a few of the reasons that I don't believe evolution is true. Well, the transitionary evidence is lacking. The fossil record is insufficient to say the least. We don't have transitionary evidence for the 10 billion or so species that have existed on this planet in the planet's history. We don't see the gradual change over time that would be expected if evolution were true. Additionally, we don't see the genetic evidence for transitions between species. Now, some would challenge me on that statement and say, what about pseudogenes? And I would say, well, if they are non-functional DNA or if they are non-coding DNA or if they are so-called junk DNA, then maybe the pseudogene argument holds a little bit of water. But what we're finding now, from what I understand, is that there's really no such thing as junk DNA, that we were wrong in calling any DNA junk DNA, and that those sequences of DNA that we thought were junk, that we thought were just vestigial remnants of some past mutation in a shared common ancestor, we're realizing now those aren't vestigial at all, but they actually serve a real purpose. In other words, the pseudogene argument kind of falls apart. So the transitionary evidence is lacking. The mechanism of evolution is insufficient. So when we look at natural selection, when we look at positive mutations, we don't see positive mutations that increase the genetic information of a species that contributes some new feature to the species that wasn't present before, that contribute a new and positive feature that's preserved in the offspring through natural selection. We don't see that. And that is what's fundamental for evolution. So the transitionary evidence is lacking. The mechanism is lacking. Now, if I went into an organic chemistry class and didn't have a mechanism or 25 of them for a certain reaction, I'd fail the class. The reality is in biology and specifically in evolution, scientists have been looking for that mechanism for over 100 years and have yet to find it. It doesn't exist. The mechanism is insufficient. Life doesn't come from non-life. That's another problem for naturalistic evolution. Chemical evolution, you might say. Abiogenesis. We don't have any way that life could come from non-life. And that's a problem for the naturalistic evolutionist. Additionally, the existence of information and design. Even if evolution had happened in certain ways, what about the laws that govern those processes to make them happen? Where did the information come from? For example, even if you could get the RNA or DNA strand for the simplest theoretical prokaryote to come together in some primordial condition, even if you could get that, you wouldn't have any information encoded on that DNA strand. So where did the information come from that's present throughout this universe? Where did the design come from that's present throughout this universe? Where did the scientific laws come from that govern everything else? See, evolution has no explanation for those things. Finally, the start of the universe from nothing is a big problem for the evolutionists. See, even if evolution were true, it wouldn't explain where we all came from or how everything came to be or why everything came to be as it is. So, again, does evolution disprove God? No, it doesn't. And I would say even further than that, evolution isn't even true. It is what has been called 
the only game in town. If you are pre-committed to naturalism, atheism, and a life without God, if you're pre-committed to the non-existence of God, then you have to come up with a naturalistic explanation. Statistics be darned. It doesn't matter what the stats say. If we have to have naturalistic explanations, we'll force one regardless of what the science says. And that's where a lot of evolutionists have taken things. They haven't followed the science where it leads. They've followed their assumptions and presuppositions where they demand the scientists go. And that's not good science. Okay, so can we trust the Bible? Yes. Is evolution true and does it disprove God? No. Next question. What about the problem of pain? Well, you've heard me discuss it on the show before. A lot of people might say if God is good and all-powerful, wouldn't he take care of all pain, suffering, and evil in the world? Wouldn't he remove it all? And since we see it in the world, either he's not good or he's not all-powerful. The problem with that statement is that assumes that this world is all there is. See, as a Christian, I realize there's more than just this world. There is so much more than this world. The Bible tells me that this world is nothing but a launching pad for eternity, that there is an eternity that awaits every human being. And the Bible tells me that God has allowed us to be in a world where we can make real free decisions. Some of those decisions are decisions that reject God, and some of those decisions can be decisions in line with what we know God says is true Now and right. Now, the problem with this accusation that if pain exists, God must not be good or all-powerful assumes that God has no purpose in the pain, evil, and suffering that exist on this planet. God did not create evil. Evil is the absence of good, just like dark is the absence of light. When God says, follow me, and I choose not to follow him, I'm the source of evil, not God. God's not the source of evil. My free will is the cause of the pain, evil, and suffering that we see throughout this planet. Some would say, well, what about natural disasters? Because human free will obviously is the source of the pain and suffering and evil of torture and rape and murder and extremist Islam beheading people, things like that. That's human evil, no doubt. But what about natural disasters? Well, according to the Bible, even those are a result of man's sin in the beginning. So we could say all pain, suffering, and evil on this planet are a result of man's sin. Now, additionally, I mentioned it a minute ago. There is a purpose, though, in all these things. See, as a Christian, I have a purpose in pain. The atheist has no way to say anything is evil because if there is no God, then there are no standards. If there are no standards, then nothing is right or wrong. So according to atheism, murder and love are no different than each other. Hate and love are no different than each other. That is the reality of a godless world. Now, according to a Christian worldview, there is a purpose in our pain. See, God is preparing us for something greater than this world, an eternity with him. And if God can allow pain and suffering and evil on this planet now in such a way that it will lead more people to be able to enjoy an eternity with him in heaven, bring it on. Bring as much as you need to get as many people there as possible. I've heard the analogy of a tapestry, and I've shared this on the show before. When we look at a beautiful tapestry, sometimes we see knots and frays and things going all different directions looking at it from the backside. If we look at it from the backside, we would say there's no order. It looks chaotic. It looks horrible. But when we look at it from the opposite side, we see 
structure, and beauty, we see the purpose in all that look like chaos on the other side of the rug. It's the same way with our life on this planet. See, God has put us in a planet to prepare us for eternity, and in eternity, everything that happened on this planet will make all sorts of sense. Until then, there might be some question marks. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution on KDUR, 91.9 and 93.9 FM in Durango, and KDUR.org online. Thanks for listening. I'm talking about the top five questions that I hear people asking on campus. We've talked so far about question number one, can I trust the Bible? And I said, yes, we can. Question number two, is evolution true and does it disprove God? And I said, it does not. Question number three, what about the problem of pain, suffering, and evil? Doesn't that invalidate a good and all-powerful God? It doesn't. The next two questions, and we don't have a lot of time to address them, so I'll keep them short, are what about homosexuality and how can I be right with God? Well, what about homosexuality? The Bible says that God loves all people. The most famous verse in the Bible that we've all heard a million times, John 3.16, says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So right from the start, Westboro Baptists are wrong. And again, they're not Baptists. They're not even legitimate Christians. God doesn't hate homosexuals. God loves homosexuals. God loves all people regardless of their actions. Every human being, the Bible says, is made in God's image. And God loves them and we should love them too regardless of our differences with them. Now, going a little bit further, what about the lifestyle that they endorse? Well, the whole message of the Bible is that no matter your lifestyle, when you come to Christ, you submit that to his lordship. See, if I'm following Christ as Lord and Savior, then by default, I'm following him. I'm doing what he says is right, not what I feel is right. Trusting that what he says will make me satisfied will make me more satisfied than anything I could ever come up with for myself. There was this story in scripture where a rich young ruler came to Jesus. He was very wealthy. There's no problem with money. There's nothing inherently wrong with money. But this rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, what do I need to do to follow you? And he challenged this young man to sell all he had and give it away to the poor. Now, this isn't a blanket statement for all wealthy people. Not everyone has to sell everything they have and give it all away to the poor. We should all help the poor, no doubt. But what Jesus was doing with this man was he was telling him the thing that was most dear to him and most important to him, the thing that he couldn't imagine living without. Jesus said, that is what you need to surrender to my lordship and follow me trusting that I'm even better than that. That's the message of Christ to homosexuals, heterosexuals, and anyone else. When you come to Christ, you surrender to him. And that means you say, my old way of life is not the way I'm going. I'm choosing to follow you, not because I have to, not because there's a gun to my head and I have to do it, but out of my own free will, out of my own choice, I'm choosing to believe that following you will be better for me and will be more satisfying for me than whatever I ever could have done before now. That being said, God calls all of us to surrender all of our lifestyles to him and to follow a very specific lifestyle of obedience to him that he says will satisfy us more than anything else ever could. And that's the story I've encountered as I've surrendered my lifestyle to him and allowed him to take over as I've given up very many things from my past that I felt very close to and desired to continue engaging in. 
God has come in and he's replaced those things with something far greater, himself, and a relationship with himself. So the message to homosexuals, heterosexuals, and anyone else is God is calling you to give up your lifestyle and follow him, whatever your lifestyle is, to follow him as Lord and Savior, trusting that following him will be better for you in the future and more satisfying for you in the future than anything else you could do on your own. All right, so the last question, how to be right with God? Well, I mentioned it a minute ago, but God loves you dearly, no matter your lifestyle, no matter your persuasion, no matter your belief system, no matter your worldview. God loves you dearly. The Bible says that God so loves the world that he gave his only son. God says in his word that he's loved you with an everlasting love, that his thoughts for you outnumber the sand of the seas. That's incredible. But how can I be right with God, this student asked me this week. Because we all know that I have not measured up to what I know to be true. We all know that I've failed my own standards, much less God's. We all know that I haven't lived up to the kind of person I want to be, much less the perfect person that I should be. See, the Bible says that God is perfect and that I am not perfect. I am sinful. And my sin and imperfection, my selfishness, separate me from a perfect, loving God. Sin always separates relationships Sin always breaks up friends. Selfishness always puts a barrier between loved ones. And our own sin and selfishness, our own imperfection has done that with God. So even though God loves you dearly, your sin and my sin separate us from him and from the plan and purpose that he has for us, from the relationship that he designed us to be in with him. So how can I be right with God? Because left there, I'm not right with God. Well, the Bible says there is nothing you could ever do to be right with God. Even if you went to church every day, even if you read the Bible every minute, even if you prayed every second, you could not get on God's level because you'd still be imperfect. There is nothing you can do to be right with God. There is no amount of work, there is no amount of religious devotion that could make you right with God. Nothing would suffice. That's horrible news left alone. The Bible says God, knowing that, came and lived a perfect life here on this planet. Jesus Christ, God in human flesh. He lived the perfect life that none of us could, and he died on the cross for our sins. When he died on the cross, the Bible says he nailed our sin to the cross. He nailed it to the cross once and for all, making way for you and me to have peace with God. See, something had to be paid for my sin, and I could never pay what needed to be paid. So God paid it for me. My sin was paid for when Jesus died for me at the cross. The Bible says I can be right with God not by trying harder, not by being more religious, not by doing more good things, not by doing less bad things, because none of that would make me right with God. There's only one thing that can make me right with God, and that's Jesus and what he did for me and my choice to allow him to pay for my sins. See, the Bible says that Jesus, when he died on the cross, he paid for your sins. And now he offers a free gift. In fact, the Bible says it's a gift that you can't work for. Pretty blunt. It's a gift that you can't earn. He gives us that free gift and he says, will you receive it? Will you take it? See, if I give you a gift and you pay me for it, it's no longer a gift. Right? We can never pay for this gift. So the Bible says, I give you a gift, a gift of forgiveness and salvation and eternity with me in heaven. Will you receive it? Will you take it? The Bible says if you receive that gift by faith, trusting God will actually do what he 
says he'll do, you'll be adopted into his family. You'll be forgiven. And you can look forward to an eternity with him in heaven and a lifetime with him on this planet. That's how you can be right with God, simply by putting your faith and trust in him, confessing him as Lord and Savior, believing that he died for your sins and rose again, and receiving the free gift of forgiveness that he offers. You can do that right now by saying, Jesus, I ask you to come into my life to forgive my sins. Thank you for dying on the cross for me and raising to give me new life. I ask you to be my Savior and Lord. Please come into my life and make me the kind of person you want me to be. If you just did that, if you just put your faith and trust in him, verbalizing that through prayer, confessing him as Lord through prayer, then you've been adopted into his family and you can now look forward to an eternity with him in heaven and a life with him on this planet. Well, those are answers to the top five questions that I hear students asking. I hope they encouraged you. I would also invite you to visit a local church this morning and grow with God. You could do that at godsolutionshow.com. You'll see a list of local churches and the times and the places that they meet. And I would also invite you to visit Connect this week. We meet in Noble 125, and we'll be meeting at 6 p.m. There will be food and snacks and a great time of hanging out with other believers and growing closer to God. Again, Noble 125, Tuesday at 6 p.m. Well, like I always say, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. And that's my hope that you'll find him this morning. Thanks so much for listening. Have a wonderful Sunday afternoon.